This is the Business of Cannabis, a joint venture between the Green Generation Co. and the Cannabis 101 podcast. Bringing you the latest bud, biz, buzz. Malka LaBelle from the Green Generation Co. joins me as usual. Find uh, online at greengencompany.com and find out how Malka can help you uh, be a greener person, let's say. Malka, thanks very much for being here once again. How are you? I'm great, Dean. How are you doing? I am excellent. Loving the sunshine that we're getting. Our summer this year started out a little bit slow, but uh, much better than it was last year. We could do without some of the crazy thunderstorms, uh, but I'm loving the sunshine. (laughs) Definitely. I concur. All right, let's discuss um, the, uh, I guess, the cannabis uh, ecosystem and uh, your notion that are they harder than people might have thought? And you're basing this off of a story uh, that one gentleman went through and and just, uh, and well, I guess a collective and just could not make it work. So, so what's the, what is the cannabis ecosystem like for somebody trying to get in? Yeah, so... I actually refer to this in the, it's part of the, the, the content that I've created for um, an education program through Elevated Learning Academy, really because in dissecting how to maneuver in this industry with so many harsh regulations around marketing and promotion, um, what we've seen develop are different kinds of ecosystems. And what, we, what I mean by that is that these are, ecosystem is like a group of, of companies or a group of individuals or anything where the business of one feeds into the business of the other. So um, it's really like they're all like-minded in some way. And like, it's essentially without having to go out and externally market and find new customers all the time, which is how we consider think of business operations and consumer packaged goods and really anything is you've always got to spend money to find new customers. An ecosystem effectively gets the businesses in a position where they're, they grow together stronger because one person's um, products, they support another person's input for what they need for their business. So in, in this case, uh, case, we're talking about a collective of, uh, of craft growers. Um, and this is, we talk about our craft growers and our love of the cannabis that comes from craft growers. But we also understand that growing and starting a cannabis, either microcultivation or any kind of cu- cultivation uh, program, it's a lot of upfront capital and a lot of upfront work. Um, but once sort of it gets going, it generates a lot of good products and, and a lot of learning that people can kind of sort of teach each other. And these, this ecosystem um, that was referred to in this particular article, article that was covered in NJ Biz Daily, I'd actually covered them before um, uh, in a, another publication, but it was called the Wildfire Collective, and they were operating under the Ottawa Valley. And this one cannabis grower, uh, Mark Spear, was is his name. He's it was his idea to start this collective in that area. He saw that there was a number of growers that were interested in getting together and growing their craft product, and they secured some land um, that was sort of near this municipal- municipality. But um, and we know that outdoor cannabis is a hugely can be hugely advantageous because of the lower cost operating costs to grow. You don't need as much you know, capital, you don't need as much equipment to really get going. Uh, but you do need a supportive w- group around you um, that can help um, with obstacles, with hurdles, as well as with the stakeholders around that. So 
that's what happened here is that uh, Mark himself, you know, got his group together and was trying to set up this wildfire collective near Ottawa and uh, did it with equity crowdfunding. So they got, they had a crowdfunding campaign, uh, I believe it was online, and they were able to um, to really raise enough money without having to get a lot of um, other investors. Um, and it's kind of like an anti, it's like a very much a, like, I'm going to say like a, a commune type model. Like, I mean, there's a lot of other ones that have done it successfully in the past. A kibbutz model in Israel is an example where you've got all of these people working together to for a collective good and everybody is taking something away personally, but working in together. So it's kind of an anti-capitalist model in some ways, but can still work within a, a capitalist system, but it still needs the support of the groups around it, the stakeholders and the, the municipalities and the local and, and uh, regulatory uh, or government to be supportive um, and to understand what they're going to gain in order for the ecosystem to be successful. Ecosystems don't exist in, the, in a vacuum. If, if anything, they're the opposite of that. They, they allow uh, more people to get involved with a lower cost of entry, but you still have to make sure that you've got everything covered off the people around you to make sure that everyone understands the benefits because it can be a long time until really anyone's seeing seeing those benefits so you have to have those people together rally to, to make it work i i love the idea of this and you know in you know when you go from start to finish and you fast forward to the end the the ultimate benefactor is the customer who's going to get a better quality of cannabis and, and i think these ideas um, well, you know, this one sounds like it, it's having trouble getting off the ground. I think this is not the future, but part of the future of uh, that craft cannabis idea. And, you know, uh, th- it sounded like they just ran into a bunch of roadblocks every time they turned around. Yeah, definitely. And and you know what? Like, it's it's not, um, it's very common. You know, it's, it's very common for ecosystems or anyone really that's bringing in something new to an area that's not familiar with it. Um, and, and actually, in the article, he takes Mark takes a lot of time, sort of, to outline sort of the, the learnings that he learned from it to teach others. And I wanted to just address some of those because I think they're really important. And and I I actually there's other ecosystems that I cover both in the the uh, lecture series that we do with Elevated Learning Academy, but also that are right in our backyard. And that's with the Tabor, um, the the Tabor Collective. And I've had um, um, in, uh, talks with the the head of that group. Um, uh, Lindsay Blackett and, and Lindsay has basically figured out <laughs> that because they're running a, a very similar a, a, cr- a craft collective uh, cannabis um, ecosystem but you know what he did is he was very smart and he took the word cannabis out of it um, he calls it a, a, an ag tech a, a sustainable uh, ag tech um, you know uh, cultivation I know there's lots of words about farming and, 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 agri-tech and agriculture and, and technology without using the word cannabis. And that's how he sold it to the municipality of Tabor. And, and he had to get that buy-in uh, to change some zoning, to acquire some more land. And they're working with a research facility uh, in, the, in their area. But he literally said, you know what we learned is that we learned to stop talking about this cannabis. This is an agricultural product. We're, a, we're applying technology. We're applying innovation. We're applying new ways of doing things to an old plant, and we're getting success. But if we use the word cannabis, it effectively, the stigma is what kills it. And, and Mark Spear says something similar. And it's about the stakeholders that aren't necessarily directly impacted, 
that you have to sell the concept to first. And it's no different than, than the pipeline conversation that oil and gas companies and sort of not in my backyard or the NIMBY, com, uh, the NIMBY com concept where governments or local people sort of have a really loud voice if they don't really understand what they're going to benefit from these ecosystems happening in their backyard. And that's what it is, is you really have to start with the people around the ecosystem and then work your way in um, to have them understand what the benefits are to them first before trying to set up some of these, um, these quite large projects that have a long time until they really see those rewards. Yeah, I, I guess that's a necessary evil, uh, a, a, a deal you can make right now. And hopefully in time, we don't have to uh, hide the word cannabis uh, from what we're doing. But, you know, these maybe are the the trendsetters and the pioneers that are going to get us to a position where we are able to do it. Uh, because it's, uh, like I said, a necessary evil to, to you know, hide the word cannabis and and that all ties back to the stigma with it right now right so right. you know maybe these companies are the ones that are helping to change that in this specific way definitely i look forward to seeing what the other ecosystems because there are other ones out there mm -hmm. um that can do um and and you know putting them together to learn because they're across the country uh, maybe it's a matter of just connecting those groups together so they can learn from each other. For sure. All right, let's move on to change makers now. And we're talking about All Nations Cannabis Corp, uh, a bright spot in the First Nations loophole. And this is something that you and I have discussed on a few episodes about, you know, how this works, whether you're on uh, Indigenous land compared to just, you know, regular uh, uh, government land. Yeah, and, and again, this is sort of on my quest in BC to sort of unpack what has been going on and these interesting kind of different, I mean, the, the, the argument from the, the legal stores in the BC region is that the, uh, the native groups are taking away their opportunity because they're able to sell, they're just allowing illicit activity in the stores to happen. But this group is different. This group, um, their goal is to really work within the government uh, regulatory framework, but just do it a little bit different and, and really to help not just their nations, like they're within their one particular band in, uh, in the Okanagan or sorry, in the BC, but they also really want to be a leader for all, um, first nations groups in Canada. And, and I think really world, they really want to have that sort of, you know, we're, we're worth something and we have an opportunity to try it a little bit differently. And they came to me um, because they have several stores already open uh, in the uh, BC region, um, and they're opening a lot more very quickly. Um, their stores are sort of in this a little bit of a gray zone. I mean, they're they're really trying to be as close to the regulated retail model that we have, but understanding that um, cannabis retailers are a jurisdiction underneath the um, the the AZLC or the mm -hmm. uh, regional province. Um, regulations. And the thing about First Nations groups is that they see themselves um, on par with provincial regulators in some cases. And in other cases, they see themselves as can do whatever they want. And some and the regional um, provincial regulators see them as just like another municipality. So mm -hmm. there seems to be a bit of disconnect depending on who you talk to. But this particular group just wants to do it better. And that's why they came to me. They were they were understanding there was I was creating educational content um, for different groups, and that's why they literally picked up the phone and said, "Hey, you know, we see you're doing this. 
we'd like to speak to you about because we want to provide a really good education background for our people in our stores. And we want to do that to the best of our ability. Um, so that's where the conversation started. And when I was out in BC, I went to these stores and they look just like retailers, like, like a regal, legal retailers that we have here in Alberta. Um, and they just happen, their products just are kind of a wider assortment. So let's put it that way. But even the packaging was really, really, really close to, um, and the dosing, everything looked really, really, really similar to, um, what is fully from an LP here. And their goal is to stock their stores with all LP product. I think they're working towards that, but they just don't have the, um, the, the ability to, um, to buy as much as they can for the needs of their stores. Like your stores are super busy. Um, and the people are, you know, the one store I was in, it was like a friggin' like uh, a revolving door of people just walking through, picking up their order and walking out. Like it was so busy that I'm like, holy crap, this is a ton of volume. They wouldn't even have enough ability to stock that store. Um, just in, that's one of several. And I think that's what they're running up against is that they're, they can't, keep up with the demand and they have so much demand that they're just trying to do it better and i just i really honor them for the fact that they're trying and they want people to appreciate that they are working really hard for compliance but respect the fact that they're sort of in this no man's land and that was created by the structure of patchwork that was in you know world house with cannabis where there's a you know reg, there's government uh federally there's you know governed provincially and then below that is municipalities that sort of created this confusion that they're just trying to navigate i'm shocked uh that this wasn't addressed in the initial rollout of legalization where uh indigenous land stands on this and i'm, I'm shocked that it wasn't uh, uh made more clear because i you know i've always thought that that is where the first place uh sort of those consumption cafe ideas would be uh, because there is such a disconnect and a, and a contention of what can and cannot happen. Um, I, and I still think it will be, uh, you know, whether, yeah, I, I don't know if we're, we're going to get there right away, but I think when we do, the first place will be in that area. That's, that's what I think, but uh, it is certainly one to watch and to see, uh, you know, these stores popping up, uh, you know, across the country. Definitely. And I really think that there's, you know, the economic prosperity for these, you know, this group, not just this group, but everybody that's kind of really suffering in economic prosperity right now, we're seeing the demand of both, you know, not only uh, jobs needing to be filled, particularly at the retail level, but in all places in between. And I think there's a huge opportunity that the business case can be made that if they're doing something and they're trying to reach that, those, you know, those regulatory goals that are being set, but they're doing it in a way that they're making money. They're making money for their own group. We have to remember, native groups don't have to pay uh, GST or other taxes, so that's an advantage that they have. But they're giving money and they're producing revenue and economic prosperity for their group, which means that the rest of the countries and all of the other people in it aren't responsible or don't have to do as much to, you know, to give back to them as well. So I think that that's they're trying to be self-sufficient within the structure that they're in. And the fact that this regulatory patchwork was created, I mean, honestly, we've seen many faults with the federal government with this rollout, but everyone's just trying to do it better. Mm -hmm. And I think if we still have that model and not penalize them for that and say, well, this is not the way we do it. It's like nobody really knows yet how to do it. We're still figuring it out. Um, 
at least give them the benefit of the doubt for trying and creating the economic prosperity along the way for their people. Uh, very well said. All right, let's move on to what it means to be green. And uh, where are you taking us on the, this segment today? So this is <laughs> looking back at some past uh, things that I had spoken about. And um, the the topic of NIMBY, which I brought up in the first segment, part of the talk today about not in my backyard. It's an acronym. Um, and then the other side of the not in my backyard uh, argument is the grass is greener on the other side. So this is a dichotomy of protest. And this is a concept that is not new to anything. It's like, how is it that people continuously have grievances with what's going on around them? And everybody has a bone to pick with something. We're seeing tons of protesting happening all over the world right now for lots of different reasons. And I'm just wanting to sort of clarify that there really is somewhat of sort of everything's the same, but yet, you know, there are different ways that it can be shown. So, you know, not in my backyard. Um, that's in response. What I'm talking about there is communities surrounding cannabis businesses that don't necessarily want it there, largely because of the, they're ill-informed or the stigma reasons that we already discussed. Um, and the, the concept of the grass is always greener on the other side. Well, that's what people think is an illusion that they should be trying to get to or they want um, because they don't have something right now. And, and these are both, like I said, protest movements, reasons for backlash, uh, and they're highly effective ways for getting individuals to rally against or on a common topic um, that um, can really push to change for, for change. This is how people as individuals in a democratic society get together around a subject matter and get things changed, get things done. And it's usually involving some sort of a stigmatized issue, like the pipeline protest is an example, like cannabis is another example. I mean, all of the people that came before, um, you know, came before us and that were, you know, uh, um, thrown into jail and, and, you know, all of their rights taken away from them because they were using cannabis for health reasons. They're an example. They were protesting for, against, um, you know, the, or for the ability to use cannabis for their, you know, personal use. And here we have it being legal. And now there's still people saying, well, we don't want it here for whatever reason. So all I'm saying is that there can be so many different sides to, this, to these arguments. But what it does is it brings people together. It unites them on some purpose and some reason that allows them to have a voice that they may not have had uh, in, in another way and different than just voting. Like voting, yes, everyone has a chance to vote. And in a democratic society, we have very structure around that. But this is a way for people to sort of have a voice, take a stance, whether their reason for, for you know, vocalizing it is true or stigmatized or missing in information. It's definitely a place to start. And it's a place where there can be community engagement and outreach. Whereas if there are businesses that are being protested against, here's an opportunity to have a point of communication and open up the doors for asking questions and clarifying information in a, in a discourse that just doesn't end in hate or violence. So all I just want to say is that, you know, you can satisfy every stakeholder. Um, and that's where you got to start because in business, it's not about the shareholders. The shareholders will be happy if you can um, satisfy these, these stakeholders that have a protest against what you're trying to do. And successful models of business 
um, that can stand, that will rise up and, and be successful if they recognize that you have to start with the people that don't necessarily have an economic interest in what you're trying to do. And that's the, the, the bottom line here is that the people that have a voice aren't necessarily your customers and they're definitely not your shareholders, but they're your stakeholders. And they're the ones that have to be communicated to, to, you know, end that stigma and to overcome those misinformation that they're, they're voicing very loudly against. Well, yeah. And to be able to have those, you need to be able to get in that market. And, uh, you know, I've heard lots of stories from people uh, that tried to set up a store here and had backlash from the community. And so then they had to look at another option. And, and you know, I'm not going to guarantee anything, but I'm pretty sure a lot of the people protesting probably haven't been into a legal cannabis store and are basing their um, beliefs on something that is uh, outdated and, and not uh, what it used to be. So it, it all comes down to information. And, and, you know, before you protest, maybe get really educated about what you're protesting against. Exactly. And it's also up to the businesses to take the time to educate sure. people around them, have the town halls, have the engagement opportunity, go out there and say, Hey, we're thinking about doing something in your community. We have the opportunity to hire you for jobs, for economic prosperity, for revenue back to the community, for giving charity back to the community. What do you think? You know, start with an open hand of here's how we want to help you instead of how we're trying to take away something from you. And you might have some better outcomes. Yeah, education is key, Malka. Thank you so much for joining me as usual. Uh, people can find more information at greengencompany.com. Thanks, Malka. Thanks, Dean.